Welcome, my fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags, and other key symbols of America. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and co-creator of Patriot Week. This episode continues our detailed review of the Declaration of Independence. Over this podcast, we'll be examining each sentence of the Declaration so that we can understand the foundation of our freedoms and liberties. If you missed our prior episodes, I recited the entire Declaration, reviewed the prefatory text, and have explored the first full sentence. You might want to go back and listen to catch up where we are, but if you don't care about the background and how we arrived at this sentence, feel free to jump on board with this episode right now. When we return, we'll be reviewing the sentence that begins, We hold these truths to be self-evident. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. We are the most unique country in human history because we were the first to actually lay out in writing our origins, purpose, and underlying founding first principles in the Declaration of Independence. And unlike some other nations that have done the same thing since, we actually take our Declaration seriously. The first sentence of the Declaration of Independence is as follows, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, unquote. There is so much to unpack in this sentence. In fact, this is the indispensable sentence that most people think about when they consider the Declaration of Independence. To do it justice, we really need to review it very thoughtfully. We're going to begin at the beginning. Quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, unquote. And in an earlier episode, we spent some serious time discussing who the, quote, we, unquote, is in the sentence. As such, we're not going to spend much time on who the we is. But as a reminder, the Declaration of Independence was promulgated by the Second Continental Congress, Each of the former colonies, now states, sent representatives to the Congress to govern the conduct of the resistance against British oppression, and they, in turn, made the momentous decision to declare independence. They were representing the people of America. The next word is, quote, hold, unquote. That is, we hold. Hold here basically means to believe, to firmly grasp, to embrace. The focus of this episode will be on the idea of what the founders held, that is, the self-evident truths. You might think this is a relatively simple concept. That is that all we need to say here is that the founders believed in truth and that some were so obvious that they did not require justification. Perhaps that might have been the case in 1776. But I'm recording this episode in 2020 and nothing could be further from the truth. All puns intended. Actually, the whole concept of truth has been in heated dispute for millennia. Just to illustrate this point, let's look at a biblical passage that was undoubtedly well known by the founding generation. To understand the passage, let's go back to the fundamentals. Remember, as I said in our last few episodes, almost all the founding fathers were raised to believe in Christianity. They believed that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, who had appeared on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit to suffer, die, and be buried, and was raised again on the third day. And in doing so, his sacrifice would wash away the sins of mankind. 
In the course of his holy mission, he was betrayed by one of his twelve disciples, an apostle named Judas, and he was arrested in the garden at Gethsemane, where he was praying. According to the Gospel of John, he was brought before the high priest Caiaphas, and then before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the province in which Jesus is being tried. And this is where we pick up the story. And here I'm going to be using the King James Version, which is likely the source that most of the Founding Fathers would have been familiar. This is John, chapter 18, 28 through 40. Quote, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas unto the Hall of Judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the Judgment Hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went over unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him upon to thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou hast say that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find no fault at all. But ye have a custom, that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Unquote. What an amazing passage. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, this passage reveals so much about human nature and our weaknesses and strengths and our perspectives. In the decidedly more contemporary version of this exchange, the blockbuster hit Jesus Christ Superstar, the lyrics of Andrew Lloyd Webber portray it as follows. Quote, Pilate. Talk to me, Jesus Christ. You have been brought here, manacled, beaten by your own people. Do you have the first idea why you deserve it? Listen, King of the Jews, where is your kingdom? Look at me. Am I a Jew? Jesus replies, I have no kingdom in this world. I'm through. There may be a kingdom for me somewhere, if you only knew. Pilate, then you are a king. Jesus, it is you that say I am. I look for truth and find that I get damned. Pilate, but what is truth? Is truth a changing law? We both have truths. Are mine the same as yours? Crowd, crucify him, crucify him. Unquote. Pilate questions the very idea of truth, as we might commonly understand it. He questions the idea that the truth is fixed, and that the idea of truth is the same for everyone for all time. So, the idea of what is truth, and whose truth, has been with us for thousands of years. 
Actually, the controversy about truth is even more ancient than a couple of thousand years. It probably started with the dawn of man. Whether you believe in the biblical account of Genesis or not, this archetype story reveals how the search for knowledge, that is truth, leads to the loss of paradise. According to this biblical account, after God creates the world, he creates the first man, Adam. Again, referencing the King James Version, Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17 and 21 through 25, quote, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now my bone of bones, and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Unquote. So there it is. There is this idea of a tree of knowledge of good and evil, that is of truth. That was the forbidden fruit. And you know the rest of the story, but I'm going to read it from the King James Version, Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 24. Quote, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Ye hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye shall die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall surely not die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat it, and gave it unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all of the days of their life. And I will put enmity 
between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And to Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats and skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now the last he shall put forth his hand, and also take of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east gate of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Unquote. Now I know that's a really long quote, but this is an amazing story and it's worth its own podcast series. The tragedy of humanity is so encapsulated here. It's just so rich. But we're not going to be distracted. The point of reviewing this passage is at the core of the Judeo-Christian worldview is the idea that there is knowledge, that is truth, of good and evil that one can know. This is the very bottom, the very bedrock of our civilization. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they became aware, conscious, of what was good and evil. They understood the truth. This made them like God. And clearly, this idea of truth is one about a fixed, unfaltering reality. It would be the same for everyone, everywhere, for all time. When Pontius and Jesus have their exchange, Jesus is not suggesting there's no truth. Instead, it is Pilate, the unwitting and somewhat reluctant anti-hero, who doubts that there is a truth. As an aside, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church believes that Pilate later became a Christian and was so distraught that he sent Jesus to his crucifixion that he committed suicide. Uh, but this is hotly contested, and we're not going to get distracted, but back to the truth. In fact, let's go way back to ancient Greece, the Plato, the best and most favorite student of Socrates, who some call the father of Western philosophy. And Anathean, Plato was Aristotle's teacher. Since Plato carried on Socrates' traditions and wrote about him, Socrates himself wrote nothing, and Plato's student Aristotle was momentously important in the development of scientific and political thinking, amongst other things, the attribution of Plato being the father of Western civilization is not an exaggeration. He wrote, quote, Truth is the beginning of every good to the gods and of every good to man, unquote. Plato's Republic, Book 7, has a very interesting and extremely influential thought experiment about the truth. He calls it a parable about, quote, of education and ignorance as a picture of the condition of our nature, unquote. Plato elaborates, quote, Imagine mankind is dwelling in an underground cave, with a long entrance open to the light across the whole width of the cave. In this they have been from childhood, with necks and legs fettered, so they have to stay where they are. They cannot move their heads round because of the fetters, 
and they can only look forward. But light comes in to them from fire burning behind them higher up at a distance. Between the fire and the prisoners is a road above their level. And along it, imagine a low wall has been built as puppet showmen have screens in from of their people over which they have their puppets." Unquote. Okay, in modern terms, imagine everyone you know is strapped into a home theater style seat in front of a TV screen. For those of you who are familiar with the Clockwork Orange, imagine being the anti-hero, Alex, strapped into a seat with your eyes pried open looking at the movie screen. Plato continues to explain that those people chained down in the cave see shadows projected on the wall based on the movements and objects behind them. They believe that the reality is what is projected in front of them, but the truth is really behind them. The same for sounds. They would only hear the echoes of real sounds. In today's terms, those strapped down in the home theater watch a TV screen that is blurry and has hazy pictures, and the sound is distorted and muffled. Plato continued that if someone is released from their chains and they turned around in the cave, they would at first be dazzled by the light, disoriented and confused. He might even need to be dragged up out of the cave. Then, of course, after his eyes have adjusted, he would be delighted to see the sun and the reality of the world, and he would pity the prisoners he had just left. In today's terms, if you got out of your seat and escaped to the outside to see the real world, you would initially be disoriented, but you would soon realize that the world was not hazy and blurry pictures and muffled sounds, and would be grateful for fresh air and blue skies and awesome sounds and the beauty of creation. Plato's story continues with an escapee coming back to the rest of humanity has been chained down. And he would try to tell them what reality was. And the response would be, quote, Wouldn't they all laugh at him and say he has spoiled his eyesight by going up there and it was not worthwhile so much as they to try to go up? And would they not kill anyone who tried to release them and take them up if they could somehow lay hands on him and kill him, unquote. In other words, if somehow the freed person tried to tell the truth to the enslaved, they would mock him and try to kill him. They are comfortable with the reality, and no wacko is going to tell them otherwise. If someone escapes the home theater and tries to get to his former companions to leave, they would kill him if they could. Plato brings it home by explaining that we are the ones who are strapped down, that our sight is like those in the prison strapped down, or the people that are strapped down watching the home theater. That we have a totally myopic view of reality. He's arguing that we have a problem seeing and finding the truth. That the pursuit of truth leads to the good and to all that is right and to beauty. Having said all that, again, Plato is not saying there is no truth. To the contrary, he believes there is a truth, just that it is very hard for mankind to find it and accept it. Indeed, Plato also stated, quote, no one is more hated than he who speaks the truth, unquote. And, quote, false words are not only evil in themselves, but they infect the soul with evil, unquote. Protagoras, another ancient Greek philosopher, had the exact opposite belief. He answers Pilate's question by going one step farther. He claims there is no fixed truth. In his book, ironically entitled The Truth, which unfortunately has been lost, in fact, it was suppressed, but you know, there are fragments of it quoted by other people. He wrote, quote, Of all things, the measure is man. Of the things that are, that they are. And of things that are not, that they are not. Unquote. 
Protagoras was from Aberderia and was part of the Sophist philosophy school and is often cited as the first subjectivist or relativist. In other words, he argued, as the quote eliminates, that what is reality is in the eye of the beholder, of each individual. Socrates restated Protagoras as, quote, it is not roughly what he means that such things are for me, such as they appear to me, and am for you, such as they appear to you, unquote. That's a mouthful, but again, the idea is a simple one. There's no truth that's objective. It's simply in the eye of the beholder. Philippe Fernandez Armesto, in his book, Truth, A History and a Guide for the Perplexed, explains the contemporary view of Protagoras' theory. Quote, Truth is just a name we give to our opinions. Everyone has their own reality, as if each of all possible universes or as many as there are people to experience them, were separately embodied in particular individuals. What is true for you is not necessarily true for me." Unquote. Under this view, there are only opinions, no facts. Everyone is the center of their own universe. Some call this global positioning syndrome, that is that the world rotates around you, and you get to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is reality, and what is fantasy. Hernandez Armesto continues to explain how Protagoras continues to influence the world to this day. Quote, Today, when Protagoras appears in the classroom or between the lines of a text, he is no less destructive for being old. He comes better equipped than ever, thanks to philosophical subjectivisms, scientific uncertainties, and dumbing, numbing linguistics. He comes fortified or modified by the cultural relativism which has arisen from the intensity in modern times of contacts between cultures and from the exchanges of ideas and people. Modern, some of the like to be called postmodern, relativists usually differ from Pythagoras by advocating the quality not only of individual accounts of truth, but also those proper to particular peoples, ethnic groups, religions, social classes, and other communities. Furnished with this gloss, Protagoras is welcome in a world that desperately needs to legitimate multicultural societies. Relativism exempts members of rival sects and cults, for instance, compelled to live together in contiguous communities from inquiring perilously into each other's claims. Protagoras fits cozily into a world of demolished orthodoxies in which anything goes. He is distinctly audible above the information explosion, which disables disagreement by making it impossible for anyone to entirely be sure of his subject." Unquote. Well, think about what he's saying there. This summary is spot on. Many today claim that each civilization has the same worth. America, China, Nigeria, the Soviet Union, Cuba, they're all of equal worth that we must respect cultural practices that include arranged marriages, genital mutilation, subjugation of women, and similar barbaric practices because those cultures are just as good as ours. This view is very fashionable by so-called brilliant philosophers and tin pot academics. Now, Friedrich Nietzsche, who I would consider to be on the brilliant side, stated, quote, there are no facts, only interpretations, unquote. In a little longer passage, Nietzsche elaborated, quote, What then is truth? A mobile army of metaphors, metonyms, and anthropomorphisms. In short, 
a sum of human relations, which had been enhanced, transposed, and embellished poetically and rhetorically, and which after long use seem firm, canonical, and obligatory to people. Truths are illusions about which one has forgotten. That is what they are. Metaphors, which are worn out and without sensuous power. Coins, which have lost their pictures and now matter only as metal, no longer as coins. We still do not know where the urge for truth comes from, for as yet we have heard only of the obligation imposed by society that it should exist. To be truthful means using the customary metaphors, in moral terms, the obligation to lie, according to fixed convention, to lie, herd-like, in a style obligatory for all, unquote. In other words, there is no truth, and with no truth comes the demise of good and evil. This is the opposite of the Judeo-Christian view at the heart of Genesis. You may have heard about the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted on December 10, 1948. It recognizes a set of human rights that all people in the world should enjoy. These include, quote, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. No one should be held in slavery. No one shall be subjected to torture. All are equal before the law." Unquote. But white, this assumes there is a truth, that these rights are based on that truth. But to the modern protagorist, this is all poppycock. In fact, some people oppose the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Rights. And these aren't totalitarian dictators or communists, but the American Anthropological Association. In the October through December 1947, Volume 49, Number 4 edition of the American Anthropologist, they published a statement on human rights submitted to the Commission on Human Rights to oppose the Universal Declaration. In particular, they stated, quote, Standards and values are relative to the culture from which they derive, so that any attempt to formulate postulates that grow out of the beliefs or moral codes of one culture must to that extent detract from the applicability of any declaration of human rights to mankind as a whole. Ideas of right and wrong, good and evil, are found in all societies, though they differ in their expression among different peoples. What is held to be human right in one society may be regarded as antisocial by another people, or by the same people in a different period of their history. The saint of one epoch would at a later time be confined as a man not fitted to cope with reality. Even the nature of the physical world, the colors we see, the sounds we hear, are conditioned by the language we speak, which is part of the culture into which we are born." Unquote. In one sense, nothing could be more true than what they illustrate. Clearly, societies have differed in their views of the truth over time and among each other. Still, the downright disdain for any kind of universal truth is absolutely stunning. The logical conclusion of this perspective is that no society is better than any other, no matter what they do. It justifies the Holocaust and the Gulag, totalitarian dictatorships. There is a difference in society. Some actually take it one step more and argue that all societies are equal except the West, including America, because America and the West is oppressive and should be rejected. Edward W. Yonkins has explained the current ethic accepted by many in a 2001 article for Le Quebec Libre 
Multiculturalism, the Rejection of Truth and Reason. Quote, The main idea of multiculturalism is the equal value of all cultures, that is, cultural relativism. However, multiculturalism does not mean cultures as normally understood, but rather as biologically defined, that is, ethnically, racially, or sexually defined groups. Multiculturalism, a politicized form of cultural relativism, rejects the idea that there are general truths, norms, or rules with respect to both knowledge and morals. Gone are the Enlightenment beliefs in objectivity, reason, and evidence, and principles of freedom and justice that apply equally to all individuals. Unlike cultural relativism, multiculturalism excludes one worldview from the realm of equally valid worldviews. The Eurocentric Western perspective based on the contributions of dead white males. Multiculturalists dismiss the significance of Western civilization by claiming that Western traditions of elitism, racism, and sexism are the cause of most of our current problems. Unquote. These views of truth, or the lack of truth, and the attacks on Western perspectives would be shocking to the Founding Fathers. When they declared, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, unquote, they clearly believed that there was a truth that could be found, that it was fixed, and applied to all peoples across all times. They may not have believed that they all agreed on what the truth was, and most of them clearly believed that it was a struggle to determine the truth, but they believed there was a truth, and they also believed that that truth led to freedom and liberty, and that freedom and liberty were higher values than slavery and oppression. John Adams, for example, wrote in a letter to Thomas Jefferson dated September 14, 1813, which, by the way, is in the middle of Patriot Week, that, quote, the human understanding is a revelation from its maker, which can never be disputed or doubted. There can be no skepticism or incredulity or infidelity here. No prophecies, no miracles are necessary to prove this celestial communication. This revelation has made it certain that two and one make three, and that one is not three, nor can three be one. We can never be so certain of any prophecy or the fulfillment of any prophecy or of any miracle or the design of any miracle as we are from the revelation of nature, that is nature's God, that two and two are four. Miracles or prophecies might frighten us to lie, to say that we believe that two and two makes five, but we should not believe it. We should know the contrary. Unquote. Adams is making this simple. Two plus two equals four. It does not make three. It does not make five. There is an indisputable truth. God has given us the ability to understand the truth through, in his words, revelation. A modern example used by University of Toronto professor Jordan B. Peterson in his best-selling 12 Rules for Life and his podcast is the reality that there is pain and thirst and hunger. You can't deny those things exist. There is a reality of truth. But the founders, as I alluded to before, went well beyond math and science. They believe that truth went to good and evil, morality and immorality. In another letter to Charles Cushing dated April 1st, 1756, John Adams explained to his friend that God had given him, quote, Nobler powers of intelligence and reason has given me reason to find out the truth and the real design of my existence here and has made all endeavors to promote that design agreeable to my mind and attended with a conscious pleasure and complacency. Unquote. Jefferson concurred. 
He also added that a good education and good habits also inform the finding of the truth. In a letter to Adams dated December 10, 1819, Jefferson, after having read the quote, voluminous letters of Cicero, unquote, a Roman political figure and great philosopher, declared that quote, their minds were to be informed by education of what is right and what wrong, to be encouraged by habits of virtue and deterred from those of vice by the dread punishments, proportioned indeed, but irremissible. In all cases, to foul the truth is the only safe guide, and to eschew error, which bewilders us in one false consequence after another in endless succession." Unquote. This ringing endorsement by Jefferson that truth is the only safe guide clearly articulates the worldview of the founding generation. Clearly, people fell short and had fallen short since the original sin. But truth and morality existed and should be the pole star for behavior. If not, you end up in this endless cycle of error that is the path of destruction. The entire founding generation owed much of its philosophical bulwark to the great English philosopher John Locke. And in this regard, like so many others, they followed his path. They believed that in Locke's words, quote, to love truth for truth's sake is the principal part of human perfection in this world and the seed plot of all other virtues, unquote. In other words, one could not be a good person if he wallowed in lies and failed to pursue the truth, however hard that might be. The salvation of the individual soul and heart of morality was embedded in the truth. And this was just not a matter of personal salvation, but was the key to the people at large striving for a better, more just, and more free society. Patrick Henry, a distant cousin and political enemy of Jefferson's, invoked this idea in his famous Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech delivered on March 23, 1775. Quote, Mr. President, it is natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beast. Is this the part of wise men? engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be of the number of those who, having eyes, see not, and having ears, hear not the things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation? For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the truth, and to provide for it." Unquote. Henry's great speech, of course, ended with this call for give me liberty or give me death. Why? Because the unvarnished truth revealed that the English were infringing on the unalienable rights of the people. The truth demanded action by the entire society. Not just a little action, but the most dramatic action you could think of. Revolution. Unlike the cynics who attacked the whole idea of the truth, the founders embraced it and lived by it. They also believed it was fixed not subject to change based on popularity or fashions. Winston Churchill encapsulated this idea when he wrote, quote, The idea of truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it, ignorance may deride it, but in the end, there it is, unquote. And unlike the multiculturalists who think that the truth is whatever, whoever says it, the founders believed that it was immutable. Murder is wrong. Adultery is a sin. 
theft immoral, taxation without representation was enslavement, trial without jury, oppression, closure of legislative assemblies, tyranny. And this does not depend on popularity contests or public opinion polls. What is truth is what is truth. Mark Twain gave a profound expression of this idea and his call to action on behalf of the truth. Quote, each of you, for himself or herself, by himself or herself, and on his or her own responsibility, must speak. It is a solemn and weighty responsibility and not likely to be flung aside at the bullying of pulpit, press, government, or politician. Each side must decide for himself or herself alone what is right and what is wrong, which course is patriotic and which isn't. You cannot shirk from this to be a man, to decide it against your convictions, to be unqualified and inexcusable traitor. It is traitorous both against yourself and your country. Let men label you as they may. If you alone of all the nation decide one way, and that way be the right way by your convictions of the right, you have done your duty by yourself and by your country. Hold up your head, for you have nothing to be ashamed of. It doesn't matter what the press says. It doesn't matter what the politicians or mobs say. It doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. Republics are founded on one principle above all else, the requirement that we stand up for what we believe in no matter the odds or consequences. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move, unquote. And this idea of the truth moving the world continues to have resonance today. Martin Luther King Jr. explained that, quote, unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil, triumphant, unquote. And unlike Protagoras and his modern-day followers, what is true can often be easy to see, out in the open, self-evident. Quote, self-evident, unquote, is defined by dictionary.com as, quote, evident in itself without proof or demonstration, axiomatic, unquote. Closer to the founder's time, and perhaps even more sensible today, is Webster's Dictionary of 1828, which defines self-evident as, quote, evident without proof or reasoning, that produces certainty or clear conviction upon a bare presentation to the mind as a self-evident proposition or truth, that two and three make five is self-evident, unquote. The founders quite simply believed that some truths were obvious. No one had explained why they were truths. Such truths were clear and unmistakable. Okay, we have finished the phrase, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, unquote. Some key takeaways from this episode. There are two main views of the truth, one expounded by Protagoras and modern-day multiculturalists and cynics, that is, there is no universal truth, that each person and society have different views, and none is superior to the other. And then don't forget, there's the multiculturalists that also believe that America is worse than everybody else. They don't make them like that anymore. The founders acted on this belief. They rejected the belief system of the past and adopted a self-evident truths, a set of revolutionary ideals that forever changed the world. They rejected the rule of men and instead embraced the rule of principled truth and the rule of law. They did this by staring down the English king, the parliament and nation, the entire world. They became traitors to their own people so they could honor the truth. Plato said, quote, no one is more hated than he who speaks the truth, unquote. Well, the founders were definitely hated by the English. However, they are beloved today, and the truth leads to justice and liberty. This will be the topic of 
next week's podcast, but to give you the tip of the iceberg, Robert Kennedy captured its essence in the modern age when he stated, quote, the fact that free men persist in the search for truth is the essential difference between communism and democracy, unquote. The founders rejected the cynical belief of non-truth. They believed in a truth that can be determined by reason, instinct, and education, that the truth was universal, fixed, and applied to all people at all times. The founders believed that truth applied not only to math and science, but to human relations in government, such as that some governments were just and others oppressive. The founders believed that the pursuit of truth was essential to human happiness and to good government. The founders believed that pursuing and protecting the truth was a moral obligation and would ensure freedom, liberty, and justice, and that all men and women need to fight, sometimes literally, to protect the truth. The founders believed that some truths were self-evident, that is, they needed no proof or reasoning, they were obvious without defense. Ladies and gentlemen, we have made a great deal of progress having tackled the old age question of truth. Join us next time when we explore just what those self-evident truths are. Quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unquote. Until then, God bless you and God bless America. To learn more about our Declaration of Independence, Constitution, American History, and Civics, please subscribe to our podcast. Also visit PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week was started by my then 10-year-old daughter when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration for America. We are now nationwide, recently been recognized by the United States Senate in a unanimous resolution, and we really can use your help. You can follow us on Twitter at Patriot Week, on Facebook on our group page, and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If, again, if you're interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments about this podcast or Patriot Week in general, please send us a message on the social media platforms I've mentioned or connect with me directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. That's M-W-A-R-R-E-N at patriotweek.org. Also consider my book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America.